Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Monday, February 27th. USA Today Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page covers Washington, duh, and writes biographies of strong women in American politics and media. Nancy Pelosi most recently, a book on TV journalist Barbara Walters soon to come, and her previous one of Barbara Bush. So you may not be surprised that she's taken an interest recently in how the record number of women in the new Congress are doing so far, and if they're doing anything differently as a group, and in Nikki Haley entering the Republican presidential primary field, the only person so far to challenge Donald Trump. Didn't take long for a CNN anchor to say on TV that at age 51, Haley has passed her prime. We'll also touch on one woman in Congress making news by calling for a national divorce, as she calls it, you know, red states and blue states and kind of an amicable breakup. Susan Page is here to talk about all of it. Thanks for coming on, Susan. As always, welcome back to WNYC. Hey, it's great to be with you, Brian. I'll do the spoiler right away for people who don't know and say the congresswoman calling for a national divorce is none other than Marjorie Taylor Greene. So is she just trying to own the libs, as they say, or is she actually <laughs> proposing something? Well, she, I think she is actually proposing something. And I say that because she said it not once on Twitter, but over and over again. And then she doubled down and tripled down in interviews uh, on television. Um, I'm not sure she fully understands what a national divorce would mean to most people. That sounds like a civil war. Uh, but uh, but, you know, she is Marjorie Taylor Greene. It gets surprised as the most for making, I think, the most outrageous statements uh, in Congress uh, this year. And that is a feat given. George Santos and others who are competing for that prize. Ha. Huh. And the only reason I bring it up at all, because we usually ignore Marjorie Taylor Greene's <laughs> ridiculousness, is that this idea has come up from both sides at one time or another. You remember after Trump was elected, the writer Kevin Baker wrote an article in The New Republic called Blue Exit, much discussed at the time. He was on this show. He was everywhere, reminding Democrats that the blue states tend to be the wealthier states that disproportionately pay most of the federal taxes. Hello, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Hello out there in California, Illinois. While the red states, ironically, call for smaller government, but get most of the government spending. <laughs> so you want to take your guns and your no abortion rights and your limited health insurance and go have your own right wing country, please go, was the message there. Now we have Marjorie Taylor Greene making these uh, headlines. Do you think this could ever happen? Does it interest you at all as a solution to anything? No, I, I don't think it could happen. Uh, you know, what Marjorie Taylor Greene isn't wrong that we are a pretty divided nation uh, right now. But, you know, you only have to look at her home state of Georgia to raise some questions about this. I'm sure she thinks of herself as coming from a red state. It's a state that voted for, for Joe Biden last time around. Uh, it's become a very purple state. So which side of this dividing line would she put her own state? It, it, no, look, number one, it's, it's unconstitutional. We settled that with the, with the last civil war. Number two, it, it defies the idea of America as a diverse and complicated place where we hang together 
on some fundamental principles. Uh, and so I, I think we should not take this seriously as a proposal, but I think we have to take seriously the idea that we have divisions in our nation that we really need to address. So moving on from Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, besides her, there are 152 other women in Congress right now. The Pew Research Center did a nice breakdown of some numbers and through history. So I'm just going to read from their page and then ask you to talk about it. 28% of Congress, a record, is now women. It's not 50%, obviously, but 28% is 153 out of 540 members. Little history around that. In 1928, there were only seven women out of 500-plus in Congress, less than a decade after women were first allowed to vote at that time, and that was a record at that time, seven. It's gone up gradually to today's 153. Of the 59 women who have ever served in the Senate, 43 of those 59 have been elected just in the last 30 years. And this does not break down evenly by party. And this is the part I'm going to ask you to talk about, Susan. 22 women were newly elected to Congress last November, 15 Democrats and seven Republicans. And maybe the bottom line stat from Pew on women and political party, women are 41 percent of the Democrats in Congress now, so nearing 50 percent, but just 16 percent of the Republicans in Congress So, Susan, what might that gender gap represent about the voters of each party? You know, uh, Brian, one thing that's interesting to note is that when Nancy Pelosi was first elected to Congress in 1987, the number of women in the Republican and Democratic parties who were members of Congress were roughly even. And it's really been a, a modern phenomenon that Democrats put a focus on recruiting, encouraging women to run, investing in their campaigns and electing them. Emily's List was part of that. Pelosi herself was was part of that. While Republicans gave, uh, not only did not recruit and fi- finance women, they many Republicans opposed the idea of what they called identity politics as something that uh, that wasn't important that people should be elected on their merit, not their gender. So what, what we found in 2018, there were 13 Republican women in Congress. That was the worst in a quarter century, and that prompted some Republican women, including Elise Stefanik from from New York, to start to focus on electing Republican women. So they've greatly increased the number from 2018, but they are well behind where Democrats are in terms of the representation of women in Congress. Maybe it's worth saying out loud and tell me if you agree that it's really less about gender, as we often see in American politics, and more about race. White women voted majority for Trump in both elections, after all. Yeah, well, it, race is definitely part of the calculation in every aspect of American politics, including uh, the representation of women. And one thing that's important to note is Democratic women are driving the increasing diversity of Congress as well. Uh, you know, there are, I think, 29 uh, women, black women who have been elected to Congress um, we've, we've, uh, let's see if I, let me see if I have these numbers here somewhere. Yeah. 29 black women are in the current Congress, uh, 20 Latina women, 11 Asian American and Pacific Islander women. Uh, we now have women who represent, uh, indigenous Americans represented in Congress. Uh, so this is, this is an aspect of this growing diversity in Congress, both in gender and in race and ethnicity, and also 
in life experience, and this is why I think some people think it's important to have a diverse Congress, because you know who noticed first that there was a shortage of baby formula on grocery shelves? It was women in Congress who had young children. Mm. Yeah. Wasn't Mitch McConnell, huh? <laughs> it was not Mitch McConnell. If you're just joining us, my guest is Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today, Susan Page, who also is a biographer of Nancy Pelosi, among others. Is there a Congressional Women's Caucus, like there are other caucuses, that cross party lines around a group in this case? Well, you know, there is there has are some real examples of by there isn't there is not a woman's caucus in Congress, but there um, are a lot of examples of women working across party lines on issues like, uh, for instance, a sexual assault in the military, forcing the armed forces to handle those allegations in a different way. It was a bipartisan group of women that forced uh, the National Institutes of Health to establish uh, a, a center on women's health. Um, and just now we have a, a new we have a new bipartisan caucus in Congress working on family issues, including paid family leave. Hmm. And that's important because almost nothing is going to get hap- happen in this new Congress the next two years. But if you can get a bipartisan coalition that is uh, politically diverse and diverse in philosophy behind an issue like paid family leave, it's possible you might get something done. Well, do you see any possibility for a standalone paid family leave bill to get through this current Congress? I've asked this question of a number of people in Congress. I've asked Senator Gillibrand a number of times, who's a big proponent of paid family leave. It was in President Biden's big Build Back Better bill, which mostly failed, and so it got eliminated in that context. But I would think it would be so popular across party lines uh, given the need for child care in this country and the economic stresses on most families most of the time, um, could a standalone paid family leave bill succeed in the current Congress, in your opinion? I think probably not. Mm. Uh, but, you know, maybe you should get caught trying. All right. Um, Nikki Haley, Republican woman. Does she cite the glass ceiling like Hillary Clinton sometimes did, her supporters sometimes more often did, or is there kind of a Republican contradiction highlighting first woman as important while denouncing anything having to do with identity? I think Democrats call it representation, and then Republicans derisively call it identity politics um, of marginalized groups. So here, I'll tell you why Nikki Haley is not focused on breaking the glass ceiling. We did a poll in December that found that among Republicans, 50% 50% said their ideal presidential candidate was male. 2% said their ideal presidential candidate was female. What was the uh, percentage that said the ideal presidential candidate is male? 50% of Republicans said the ideal presidential candidate was male. 2% said the ideal presidential candidate was female. That is not the basis for Nikki Haley to argue that it would be a great thing for her to be the first female uh, presidential candidate in the GOP. Should I assume that the other 48% said doesn't matter? That is correct. Yeah. And yeah. overall, we found that most Americans said it didn't matter. Uh, and among, uh, um, uh, but among those who cared, by two to one, they preferred a man. And among Republicans, uh, that opinion was very strongly, very strongly held. And then there's the Don Lemon comment, the CNN morning host defending Biden, I guess, from Haley saying Biden has passed his prime. 
retorting that Nikki Haley is past her prime at 51 because women are considered in their prime in the 20s and 30s and maybe 40s. That's a direct quote from Don Lemon. Oh, no, Don Lemon, you didn't really do that, did you? But he did. Don Lemon, who is five years older than Nikki Haley, by the way. Oh, Don uh, Lemon is five years older. Don Lemon, five years older than Nikki Haley. Uh, how about you, Brian? Do you feel that you're in your prime? Oh, yeah. I'm definitely in my prime. And I'm older I, than Nikki Haley. Um, yeah, but me too. You, you being you and you being a biographer of strong Washington women, how did you react when he said that? Well, I thought it was, uh, I thought two things. I thought it was uh, an outrageous thing to say. And I thought it was also a view that a lot of Americans hold. Uh, you know, and one thing Don Lemon said as he was trying to dig a deeper hole for himself, he said, you can Google it. So I Googled it, like, when is a woman in her prime? And there's a lot of uh, Google responses that said pretty much what he said. So this is, this is outrageous and yet not, in fact, I think, an uncommon view for women in politics, for women in business. You know, by the way, for women in the news media, uh, women who are on television, uh, in television news, uh, say it is much harder to age uh, as a woman on TV, as an anchor, than it is for a man. Uh, and that has also been true in politics. Right. I guess one of the enduring stereotypes is that older men, as they age, maybe especially if they were publicly known as younger men, um, are more likely to be perceived as distinguished looking as they age, whereas women are more likely to be perceived as past they, their prime on television. Yeah, I think I think that's right, and it's I think it's part of the way women are um, more harshly judged on on everything, from the tone of their voice to the clothes they wear. You point out in your article on this that when Bill Clinton was elected at forty six, people questioned if he was too young to be president. So by the Don Lemon standard, that wouldn't leave leave much of a window between too young and too old for women candidates, would it? You'd have like six months there to hit. Uh, you know, we, all, we asked Americans what the ideal age of a president was in this poll we took in, in December. And uh, half of Americans said in their 50s. So by that standard, Nikki Haley is right in the sweet spot. Yeah. But she's also running on what a lot of people consider ages. I think the one thing from her presidential uh, announcement that has made the most news is that she actually proposed mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over 75. You know, speaking of ideas that won't go anywhere, uh, along <laughs> with the national divorce, I would say uh, mandatory competency tests that would in involve, by the way, both President Biden and Donald Trump. Not We've an accident, I suspect, um, on Nikki Haley's I, part. I suspect. All right. We've done national divorce. We've done mandatory mental competency tests. Uh, Susan Page, biographer of Nancy Pelosi and Barbara Bush. When's the book coming out about Barbara Walters? Uh, it's, uh, nine months. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's due to my... Due to my publisher in May, so wish me luck in getting it done. Ah, you managed to <laughs> cover D.C., be the Washington bureau chief, come on the show very generously, fairly often, and still have time to write a book. Amazing. Susan Page, always great to have you. Thank you, Brian. 
Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.